Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole, and I'm from Calgary, Alberta. Feels like we lost most of 2020 due to COVID, and 2021 is already two months in. It's crazy. And I'm over here, just yesterday, still dating files for March 2020. International Women's Day is March 9th, and this year's focus is to celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. Coincidentally, March is also Canadian National Engineering Month. There's events taking place across the country of Canada to celebrate engineering and showcase to today's youth what they can accomplish if they choose a career in engineering. And thanks to COVID, as terrible as it is, everything is online these days, so you can attend a National Engineering Month event hosted anywhere at any time. I'm actually attending an International Women's Day event, which is hosted in Australia, which is really cool to hear from women in STEM across the world. As a special segment for the month of March, in place of the news, I'll be talking about women in engineering. So in the first segment of women in engineering, I'm going to talk a little bit about the statistics. I said it before, and I'll say it again. Math paints a really good picture. So the first piece of information I got from the APEGA salary survey. APEGA is the Association of Professional Engineering and Geoscientists of Alberta. And the salary survey is a coveted document that many engineers in Alberta use to negotiate their wages. But did you know that it also included gender information? The salary survey looks at six professional roles, including entry, experienced, senior, specialist, expert, and preeminent. Of those professional roles, 57 to 78% of them are men, and only 12 to 25% are women. The salary survey also looks at four management roles, including team lead, manager, senior manager, and head manager. And in those roles, 50 to 75% of them are male, and only 10 to 15% are female, depending on which role you're looking at. On top of that, across all levels, men make 1-8% to more than women when they're in similar roles. So, looking at that information, we know there's a bit of a disparity here. There's a lot more men in these roles, a lot less women, specifically in management. I also looked at another study, which is called Women as Leaders of Change. It's a 2017-2018 global study across 14 legacy industries in the following sectors energy, utilities, materials, industrials, and consumer products such as alcohol or tobacco. Within the construction and engineering industry, only one in five of those employed are women. Only one in seven of those in management are women, and only one in ten of those on executive boards are women. Only one in ten. When comparing companies with the lowest percentage of women in executive management roles to those with the highest, there was nearly a 50% increase in profitability for companies with more women leading the charge. And companies were found to be one-third more transparent when they had the highest percentage of women serving on their executive boards. Companies with women on executive boards in the 14 legacy industries also saw a 60% reduction in energy consumption, a 39% improvement on greenhouse gas emissions, a 46% reduction in water usage, and a 74% increase in corporate responsibility. So you may be wondering why there are so few women working in engineering roles, specifically in management, and what we can do to improve this. 
Women make up about half of the workforce, so it is surprising to see so few in these roles. There are a number of limiting factors, though. Work-life balance challenges. Uh, it, it is challenging to balance the heavy workload that engineering or management comes with and still have the time and energy outside of work to have a family and to have hobbies and do things for yourself. There's also this thought that the culture is unwelcoming. Whether or not that's actually true, people still hear, oh, you know, engineering is, isn't good. They don't want women in engineering. And, and people believe that because they don't know any different. But I think that also that rumor doesn't, certainly doesn't help things. There's definitely a perceived lack of career mobility, as evidenced by the lack of women in management roles. Most people want to be promoted. They want to feel like they're contributing. And if, if women are consistently not promoted and their male coworkers are continuously promoted over them, they're not going to be very happy and they're eventually going to want to change. There's also, in some cases, a negative industry image. It is kind of a, an old boys club to an extent. That is changing. I have seen an improvement in that over the last decade, but it's definitely still there and it's definitely still a factor. It does depend on which projects you're working on and who's on them. I definitely have projects that are still like that and I have projects that are the complete opposite. I have worked on projects that are almost all women, which is really, really cool to see. And, and the project went fantastic. It was a really cool collaboration. So, so it, it is kind of project dependent, but you know, if you're working on some of those bigger projects and you're, you're kind of quote unquote stuck on the project for a long period of time, that, you know, that can grow tiresome if you're stuck in a, in a situation or an environment that you're not happy with and you don't feel, you know, that you're being treated equally. There's also a gender balance in education. There's far few women who are taking engineering in school. So it's kind of a circular process. I've heard from a lot of people you know, they'd love to hire women, but there's just no applicants. It's, it's because we got to start at the beginning. We don't, we can't just sit here in our offices and say, we need more women. Why aren't they applying without going to today's youth and talking to them about why they should choose a career in engineering and why science is a great option. Get them excited about it at the high school level, maybe even elementary school. So they're wanting to take engineering in school and enter the workforce and increase the number of women in the workforce a few years from now. And lastly, there's a concern about the ability to take maternity leave and how that could impact promotions and what happens when they try to re-enter the workforce after they leave. Say what you will about trying to balance gender roles. I'm not saying this is the way it is for everybody, but a lot of times the woman is seen as the child rearing uh, partner she's the one that you know takes care of the kids and takes care of the home and and I don't agree with that I don't think that's fair I think it needs to be shared but you know a lot of people still see it that way and so they think oh well I, I have these women in my office that are really really great at what they do and and they could definitely be in, ma in our management department but they're young and they might leave and have kids and I don't want to invest in them and then just have them leave and maybe they won't come back after maternity leave. And that's not really fair or, or accurate. Maternity leave and, and taking care of a family is a very normal, natural part of life. And I think we need to do better at incorporating that into our corporate culture and our corporate lifestyle so that we can be supportive and make sure that those those women feel safe to take those leaves and know that they can come back and be welcomed back and still valued for what they bring to the table. I should mention for those of you listening outside of Canada, we have a really good 
uh, maternity leave program. I'm I'm speaking from uh, things that I've heard. I I have not speaking from personal experience, but parents are offered up to one year maternity leave. I believe there is a certain section of a certain amount of that time that is guaranteed to the the mother, but the the father is also able to take that time off. So I definitely have seen men in the industry take paternity leave, and sometimes that's for a month, or sometimes it's for six months, or or whatever they decide to do as a as a couple. But we do have a pretty good program. I think as well, there's a special program that allows you to take 18 months off. You receive the same amount of money as you would for the 12-month leave, but it's spread out over 18 months instead. So, you know, you have to, of course, be able to afford to do that, but it does allow you to take a little bit longer time with your family before going back to work uh, and, and still guaranteeing you a spot to come back when you return. So that's kind of the numbers, what we're, what we're dealing with. Um, I wanted to just paint a picture of, of how many women are actually in engineering and what that kind of looks like and what are the, some of the issues that they're facing. But I'm going to stop there. So tune in next week for part two of this segment. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the issues and mostly what we can do as an engineering community to increase recruitment and improve retention. How do we get more women into the engineering workforce and how do we keep them there? All right, let's get into the failure. What really happened to the Hindenburg? Now on to this week's engineering failure, the Hindenburg. Full disclosure, I was not aware until I started researching this episode that Zeppelins were a method of commercial travel around the world for over 30 years. I've just been walking around thinking that the Hindenburg disaster happened during a research and development process that went horribly wrong. Boy, do I feel silly. But maybe I'm not alone. Whatever the case, after this episode, we'll all know what really happened. Before I get into the episode, though, I want to play a clip of news footage from the Hindenburg explosion and Herb Morrison's reporting of the event. This is a little bit hard to hear, so I just want to give you a bit of a warning. If you don't want to listen to it, skip forward about a minute and a half. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's right and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh my! Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and and it's falling on the morning fast. And all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's 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 flaming. Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is rising to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the planet is speeding around it. I told you, I can't even talk to people. The planes are out there. It's 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 a, oh, I I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just like they're mass of smoking wreckage. And everybody can hardly breathe and talk and scream and lady. I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I, 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 I Listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. 
I can't imagine what it would have been like to stand there watching the airship come in to land. You're likely picking up a loved one or dropping one off who was traveling on the ship, and then to have the whole thing just go up in flames like that. It's devastating. Today, mostly everything is caught on film, but back then, in 1937, this was one of the first disasters ever caught on radio and photograph. So what started the fire, and why did it burn so quickly? Well, there's a number of theories on what happened to the Hindenburg. The most widely accepted theory is that a static spark ignited leaking hydrogen. I'm going to get into that in more detail shortly, and I'm also going to briefly touch on all of the other theories. One, because I think they're really interesting, and two, because I think it's important to show that without adequate information to forensically analyze a failure, it can be quite difficult to determine what really happened. Even with adequate information, you're always going to have varying opinions on what happened. For example, a few weeks ago, I was reviewing a pipe failure to try and determine why it failed. But the contractor who repaired it didn't save the broken piece. And I get it. It was broken. He thought it was garbage. But one person's trash is another person's treasure. Had we had that piece, it could have been analyzed. But we didn't. Luckily, we had photos of the failure in place that we could review. But for the most part, our analysis of the failure was speculation and included quite a number of assumptions. Now, I'm not saying that's what specifically happened on the Hindenburg. There was an investigation, and I believe that all or part of the airship was taken back to Germany for review. But it was 1937. Technology was fairly limited back then. And also, there was World War II to factor in. It started just two years later. In fact, the Hindenburg was funded by the Nazis, which I also didn't know. So I wouldn't say that Germany was overly forthcoming or transparent with their findings on the Hindenburg investigation. While Zeppelins had been in operation for decades, the LZ-129 Hindenburg model was only in its second year of commercial service. Hindenburgs were the largest Zeppelins ever to fly. The first flight was March 4, 1936, and they retired in 1939. Think of it like the Ford Pinto I covered in episode 5. Zeppelin would be the manufacturer, like Ford, and the Hindenburg would be the model, like the Pinto. Ironically, they both exploded. That was a better example than I thought. The Hindenburg was 245 meters long and 41 meters in diameter. It was longer than three Boeing 747s end-to-end. It was only 24 meters shorter than the Titanic. If you haven't listened to the Titanic episode, go check out episode 11. Zeppelins were classified as a rigid airship. They consisted of a metal framework with a fabric covering. There were 15 rings along the length of the ship, and then 36 girders which tied all of those rings together. Inside the ship, there were 16 individual gas cells. The numbering started at one at the back or stern of the ship and worked forward. The gas cells were designed to be filled with non-flammable helium for buoyancy, but due to the Helium Control Act of 1927, which prohibited the U.S. from exporting helium to any other country, the gas cells were filled with hydrogen, which is extremely flammable. The gas cells were originally made from gold beater skin, which is from the intestines of cattle. But the Hindenburg's gas cells were made from sandwiching layers of gelatin film between two layers of cotton. This seems like very early on rudimentary fiberglass. The Hindenburg was propelled by several engines, mounted in gondolas or engine cars outside the structural framework. Some provided reverse thrust to maneuver during mooring or landing, and they were based on the design of German E-boats. 
The Hindenburg even had an autopilot. There was a gyroscopic compass to control the rudder and elevators to stay on course. The rudders controlled the left or right movement, and the elevators controlled the pitch. There was a long walkway along the bottom of the ship that allowed crew to access the command center, engine cars, fuel and water tanks, passenger and crew quarters, mailroom, radio room, etc. There were ladders up from the bottom walkway to access the axial walkway along the top of the ship. The passenger space was quite expansive, especially when you consider what we fly in today. It included bunks for all of the passengers, as well as two large dining rooms, which had viewing windows that opened during the flight. Because of the low flight ceiling, no pressurization inside the ship was necessary. The passenger quarters even had a smoking room, which seems a little silly because the ship was filled with very flammable hydrogen. To combat this, the room was positively pressurized so that no hydrogen could leak in, and there was only one single electric lighter that couldn't be removed from the room no flames were allowed. The Hindenburg carried twice the volume of lifting gas or hydrogen than previous Zeppelin models due to its large diameter. There were a few proposed designs to the Hindenburg that weren't implemented, but I think were kind of cool. So when it was intended to be filled with helium, they had looked at using double wall gas cells, having the inner cell filled with hydrogen and the outer cell filled with helium. This would allow them to valve the hydrogen to go up or down and conserve the helium, but unfortunately they couldn't get helium. They also looked at using a silica gel water recovery system to capture vapor from the engine exhaust. This would partly compensate for fuel burned by the engines. They also looked at using engines that burned hydrogen instead of diesel fuel, but the output of the engine was so low that they decided not to do that. And lastly, they also looked at recovering and launching fixed-wing aircraft from the airships. They would hook onto the aircraft and lift it up via the airship. The Hindenburg departed Frankfurt, Germany on May 3rd, 1937. It was the first of 10 round trips between Europe and the U.S. Earlier that year, it had completed a single round trip passage to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The plane was supposed to land on May 6th at 6 a.m., but the landing was delayed due to afternoon thunderstorms. There were strong headwinds during the Atlantic crossing, and the plane came in half a day late. The method of landing was a little bit interesting. They would drop landing ropes or mooring cables at high altitude, and then they would winch down the airship to the mooring mast. This was common for U.S. airships, but the Hindenburg had only performed it a few times in 1936. The ropes are pretty important here, so remember that for later. The landing place was the Lakehurst Naval Air Station in Manchester Township, New Jersey. There were 36 passengers and 61 crew on board. At 7pm, the Hindenburg made its final approach to the mooring mast. At 7.09pm, it was turned away because the ground crew were not ready. At 7.11, it turned back toward the landing field. By 7.17, the wind had shifted direction and the Hindenburg made an S-shaped flight path to the mooring mast. At 7.21, at 90 meters altitude, the mooring lines were dropped. At 7.25 p.m., everything went wrong. There are several witnesses' accounts that all kind of conflict with each other. While the landing was filmed, the actual start of the fire was not caught on film, at least not moving film. It was caught on some pictures, but not enough to really determine exactly what happened, which is why there are so many theories. So here are some of the witness accounts of what they saw just before the Hindenburg went up in flames. 
Some saw a fabric of the upper fin flutter as if gas was leaking. Some saw a flame on the port side of the port fin, followed by flames on the top. Some of the crew on board claimed they felt a muffled detonation and a shockwave, followed by a bright reflection on the bulkhead of gas cell 4, which suddenly disappeared by the heat. The fire spread more to the starboard side, and the ship dropped rapidly, consuming cells 1 to 9 from the rear and exploded. Two tanks, water or fuel, they're not really sure, burst out of the hull from the shock of the blast. The stern lost buoyancy, the bow lurched upwards, and a burst of flames came out the nose, killing 9 to 12 of the crew. There was still gas in the bow, and it continued to point up as the stern collapsed. It only took about 32 to 37 seconds for the entire Hindenburg to go up in flames. The hydrogen fuel burned up relatively quickly, but the diesel from the engines burned for hours. An official inquiry was opened in Lakehurst, New Jersey, as well as Frankfurt, Germany. And out of that investigation, there have been several theories that have been discussed and rediscussed over the years. So as I mentioned earlier, the static electricity and hydrogen leak is the most widely accepted theory. And the theory goes something like this. The outer skin of the ship was constructed in such a way that the skin was separated from the frame by a non-conductive material. And the weather delay that caused the ship to come in late was a high humid and high electric charge storm. The ropes were connected to the frame, but not the skin, because the skin was separated from the frame. The ropes touched the ground. They grounded the frame, but not the skin, which caused a spark to jump from the skin to the frame and ignite the hydrogen. So why was there hydrogen leaking? Well, before they landed, the ship had to make a big S pattern, because remember, the crew on on the ground were not ready for the ship to land. As the ship circled around to wait to land, it made a big S pattern because of the wind changes. And when it did that, it stressed the ship. The ship wasn't used to turning such tight turns. And that could have snapped one of the bracing wires and torn the gas cell open. And from there, the gas would have leaked, and then it would have eventually filled the interior of the skin. And when the mooring lines dropped, the static charge sparked, and the ship went up in flames. Now, there's also several other theories. I'm going to cover the ignition theories first, and then I'll talk about the fuel leak theories. So the first theory um, was sabotage. They at first thought it could have been a passenger, and then they started looking at some of the crew members. No one could really agree on whether it was a passenger or a crew member, and that theory kind of fizzled out pretty quickly. There was also a theory that lightning could have caused the ship to combust. But there were no witness accounts of lightning at the time. And lastly, on the ignition theory, there's a thought that it could have been an engine failure that caused the fire. One of the engines was thrown into reverse when they made that hard-ass turn coming into land, and it could have backfired, causing a shower of sparks and igniting the outer skin. That said, the engine exhaust temperatures were only about 480 degrees Celsius, which was too low to ignite the hydrogen, which had an ignition point of 500 degrees Celsius. So that theory was also ruled out. Now, there were also a number of fuel theories. What fueled the fire and caused it to burn so quickly? The incendiary paint or doping compound on the ship's outer skin was flammable to an extent and could have fed the fire. But investigations found that the skin burned too slow to fuel the fire like it did, and that theory was ruled out. 
And there was also a theory that believed that a fuel pump failure the day before the disaster created diesel vapors, which could have been ignited from overheating engines. But several witnesses claimed to see the fire begin at the top of the ship, not the bottom where the engines were located, so this theory was also ruled out. Now, I don't really know what happened. I wasn't there. It could have been a static spark combined with a leaking gas cell that caused the ship to burn up so quickly. Or it could have been a combination of some of the other theories I've listed. Without concrete evidence or a credible investigation, I would say the theories are speculation at best. But one thing we do know is that airship travel ended pretty quickly after this. This wasn't the worst Zeppelin disaster to have happened, but it was the first to be caught on camera and shared with the public. So there you have it, the almost but not quite story of what happened to the Hindenburg. How a luxurious airline went up in flames in less than a minute, effectively ending Zeppelin travel for good. While it took three days to cross the ocean in a Zeppelin, which is far too long for my taste, it would have been cool in the luxurious cabin, with my own room and a dining lounge area. That sounds way more comfortable than 10 hours sandwiched into a metal tube with 100 strangers. At least in the Zeppelin you could stretch your legs. For photos and sources from this week's episode, head to failurology.ca. There's a link in the show notes. I've also included links to the APEGA salary survey, Women as Levers of Change survey, and the National Engineering Month event calendar that I mentioned at the top of the show. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find it. If you want to chat with me, my Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email me at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune in next week to hear about the John Hancock Tower in Boston. The tower had several problems, but most notably, over 10,000 panes of the exterior glass had to be replaced during construction because they kept falling off of the building. But more on that next week. Bye everyone. Talk soon. Thank you.